Matthew 16. You don't need to stand yet. Uh, We're going to start at verse 5. And by way of review, I think uh, this first little chunk gets us into what was covered last week by Neil, because our passage actually starts with a mini-crisis going on amongst the disciples. It says, when they went across the lake, the disciples forgot that they had no bread. Tell me the irony of this. I mean, what did Jesus just get done doing? Feeding 4,000 people. And a little bit before that, he fed 5,000 people. And they have the audacity to say, we have no bread. In fact, I love how Mark's gospel puts this. It says, he says, they had but one loaf in the boat. One loaf for 12. Please tell me you see the picture that Mark gives us. Because as Westerners, I think we do truth through abstract propositions. Uh, For us, the picture then is hard for us to see, but in the Middle Eastern or Eastern world, truth comes through picture all the time. So for instance, the feeding of the 5,000, where did it happen? Does anybody know? It happened in the land, in Israel, to the Jewish people, which in Jesus' day was called the land of the 12. How many leftovers were there? 12. The feeding of the 4,000, where did that happen? The capitalists, pagans, Gentiles. In Jesus' day, it was called the land of the seven. How many leftovers were there? Seven. Okay? And Jesus is picking up on this in verses 9 and 10 when he's now scolding the disciples for saying, we have no bread. He says, oh, you of little faith, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not understand? Don't you remember the five loaves for the 5,000? What does the number five represent in the Bible? Torah. Torah. Jesus fed Torah for a Torah people. Okay? And then, what does he say next? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000. And how many basketfuls did you pick up? See, these numbers matter. Seven, of course, in the Bible is the number of completion, perfection, namely God. Four is the four winds. So not only is Jesus the bread for the people of Israel, he is the bread of life for the whole world. And here you have the disciples who have this one loaf of bread in their boat, Jesus. And they're saying, we have no bread. Shame on them. And shame on us if we ever complain about not having enough of anything, if we have Jesus in our boat, in our life. He's the bread, okay? We could end right now and go home. But let's stand for the read of God's word. (laughs) Verse 13, Matthew 16. 
When, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? By the way, where's Son of Man from? Thank you. Thank you, Randy. A lot of us just think Son of Man is Jesus' way of saying he's a human. And then when he says Son of God, that's his way of saying he's God. Actually, if you want to know the truth, uh, Son of Man actually speaks to Jesus' divinity. Go look at Daniel 7 and see what it says about Son of Man. And Son of God actually speaks to Jesus' humanity. Go look at Psalm 2 and all the places in the Old Testament where it speaks of the Son, the King, this King like David. Okay, sorry. Um, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, Mashiach, the Son of the living God. And Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that today... You are rocky, Peter. That's what Peter means. And on this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And I will give to you the keys of the kingdom. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he orders his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. All right, this is God's word. We'll start here. We're going to continue to dive into, you may be seated. Okay, so Jesus has been with these guys for almost three years, and he, according to Luke's gospel at this point, has his face set like flint on going to Jerusalem to fulfill his mission. But first, he goes on a journey. He takes his disciples to the northernmost point of Israel, to Caesarea Philippi. And it's here that he asks the disciples this all-important question. Okay, guys, you've been with me now for three years, or about three years. I want to know, who do you say that I am? Who am I? Now, before we look at Peter's bold declaration, I want to ask this question. Why does Jesus go on this huge detour? Why this place? I love this place. Um, let me just show you, uh, first of all, um, what, can you give me that PowerPoint back there? Mm, there's the Sea of Galilee. Now, do you look back in the distance? You see that mountain, snow-covered mountain? Anybody know what mountain that is? It's Mount Hermon, and that's about 25 miles north. This is the northern part of the Sea of Galilee, which is where Capernaum is. So they're going to go 25 miles north. That's where Caesarea Philippi is. It's nestled right against uh, Mount Hermon. It is a spectacular, magnificent Roman palace. Now, I've been there seven times. And here's what you need to know about Caesarea Philippi in, in Jesus' day. As beautiful and as magnificent as this city was, it was even more pagan It was Sin City. It would make Bourbon Street look like a church. It would. Um, In fact, there's this place where I take everybody 
which is called Rock of the Gods because it's this cliff. And I don't know if it's just in my mind, but I can still feel the spiritual darkness in this place when I go there. Because along this cliff, and I'll just show you a few PowerPoints of this. This is, this is the cliff as it looks today. Um, but if you can give me the next slide. You had temples all along the cliff. You have a temple to uh, Caesar Augustus, emperor worship. Uh, the next temple you have there is to Zeus. And then you see some open-air shrines. Uh, those were where they worshipped the god Pan. Now, I don't, there's too many young people in our, in, our, in our audience today for me to describe the worship of Pan. It's where we get the word panic. It's where we get the word pandemonium. Um, it was the most sexually perverse expression of worship. In fact, even to this day, Wiccans bring Pan into their thing as a symbol of male virility. And, as you can tell, these, these, these two temples, obviously they're enclosed, but the worship of Pan was an open-air shrine. And so everything that was done with the temple prostitutes, all the perversion, it was done in the open for people to see. So you have to ask yourself, why did Jesus just travel 25 miles to this place, to this, to this spot, which is called Rock of the Gods. In fact, behind that temple there to Zeus, you can see this like hole in the cliff. Coming out of that uh, hole or that cave was this massive spring. And of course, that in that world, to have a spring at that spot, I mean, that's where uh, the demonic lived. So that was called gate, the gate to the underworld, the Hades. So Jesus takes them to this place. And see, what you need to know about these disciples, I mean, in Jesus' day, it was forbidden for any devoted Jew to ever step foot in a place like that. So what's he doing? Why does he take him here to ask these guys, who do you say that I am? Well, look at Peter's response. (laughs) I love Peter. I love Peter. You know why? Because Peter is impulsive. So am I. (laughs) And if Peter thinks it, he's going to say it. So you're getting Peter's heart. And I'm sure his heart is pounding in this place. He's never been in a place like this. Jesus, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. In fact, when you read this in the, in the original language, the emphasis is on the word living. Let me ask you something. I know most of us here in the Midwest kind of live, kind of like these disciples probably lived. We, we, we live sheltered lives part. Have you ever been face to face with darkness? I remember uh, between my junior and senior year when I traveled Europe, 
being in Amsterdam for the first time. In fact, in my Let's Go Europe travel guide, remember those travel guides? Do they still have that? Let's Go? Yeah, so this was, uh, and they had a whole write-up on Amsterdam, and one of the things that was in the description of Amsterdam is that Amsterdam was called Satan's Playground. Well, this little Dutch boy from West Michigan going to his roots, like, why is this Satan's Playground? Until one day, I stumbled upon the red light district. I was sick to my stomach. I was literally nauseous over what I was looking at. The darkness was powerful. And see, I think that, in a sense, is what's going on with Peter. (laughs) Peter is saying, Jesus, you, you, are the Christ. You are the coming one. You are the son of God. You are the son of the God, the living God. Because I'll tell you what, when I was in that moment, Jesus never looked more glorious or more beautiful or more true. Now, our instinct as Christ followers is to stay away from darkness We try to avoid it. We try to shelter ourselves from it. But Jesus said, let your light shine before men so that they may see your goodness and praise your Father in heaven. And here's the deal. We don't have to go to Amsterdam. We live in Caesarea Philippi. My kids go to Caesarea Philippi every day. Some of you, you work there every day. The marketplace, we go to the marketplace every day. And here's the deal. Christ followers today, we're, we're panicking. We're, 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 we're running, we're, we're, we're hiding, we're, we're, we're trying to avoid, we're trying to shelter ourselves from this darkness. Here's the deal. The darker our world gets... <laughs> the more beautiful he gets. And to the extent that we're like him and look like him and and talk him, we're beautiful. And see, I love Jesus' response to Peter because what he basically says to Peter, hey, Peter, look, you know, you have just boldly declared who I am, so now I'm gonna boldly declare who you are. You are Simon, son of Jonah. In fact, Jesus is complimenting Peter with that because Jonah means dove. And what does the dove do throughout scripture? The dove hovers into the chaos. And Jonah is the one who went to this dark, pagan city of Nineveh. And he says, Simon, I have a new name for you. You're Peter. You're Rocky. Because it's on this rock that I'm going to build my whole movement. We have to ask, on what rock? Because there's a big debate about what, what, what the rock is. I mean, Catholics say the rock is Peter. And I'm going to say right now, in a sense, you know what? The Catholics are right. They are absolutely right in this sense. What's Peter's name? Rocky. And see, God is looking for rocks. Not popes or priests, but he's looking for whole 
hearted men and women who have left everything like Peter, who have followed Christ, and who are willing to give it all up and to go. He's looking for that. He's building his church on that. The Protestants say that the rock is Peter's confession. And they're right too, because this is the conviction that Jesus, you're the Christ, you're the son of the living God. This is the conviction that changed the world. And I'm going to tell you something. Without this conviction burning in our guts, and I mean burn, there will be no change in our lives and there will be no change emanating from our lives. And our desperate, lost, perverse world needs this conviction and people who possess this conviction. See, when I go to Caesarea Philippi, I also see Jesus saying something else. When he says on this rock, and I don't know how close they were to that rock, but I see these disciples understanding that Jesus is saying in a sick, perverted place like that, I'm going to build my church. And not only that, the gates of the underworld won't prevail against it. Do you understand this morning that the goal of Jesus' mission is not just to get you saved so you can go to heaven, but it's that you and I who are saved would do something about the darkness in this world, that we would do something about that. Because people in, 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 in these places desperately, desperately need Jesus. And the question becomes, what are we going to do about it? Are we just going to sit in here and be happy and sing songs and listen to sermons and go home and wait for heaven He wants us there. And if you don't know that, or you disagree with that, you're probably at the wrong church. Because this church exists. We exist for that. Can I say let's go? And can I get an amen? Amen. Okay. We're actually going faster than I thought. Now, next, Jesus tells his disciples in the, in the verses that following, not, he just got done explaining who he is. He's the Christ, the son of the living God, and now he's explaining what he came to do. And his mission, and I'm just going to sum this up, but hopefully you'll read it this week. His, his mission is to go to Jerusalem to suffer and be killed. And I know that we know that this is Jesus' Mission, but I want us to just get this in our hearts. He's not going to Jerusalem to live, but to die. He's not going there to get power, but to give it up. He's not going there to rule, but to serve. This is the way Messiah 
is going to put the world back together again. This is the way he's going to make everything right. It's going to be through suffering. It's going to be through death. Now, what I want you to know is what a shocker this would have been to the disciples. They would have been shocked. Because from the time that they were in diapers, they were taught that when Messiah comes, he's going to be a king like David. He's going to be this mighty warrior, conquering king, one who's going to come to judge the, the, the wicked and who's going to establish the kingdom of heaven here on earth once and for all. So for them to hear that, that Messiah is, is, is not going to a throne, but instead to a cross... I mean, God's conquering king, his Messiah, on a cross. It was unthinkable to them. It's the most absurd thing that they'd ever heard. Because think about it. A cross, a cross is the epitome of helplessness, vulnerability, and shame. It's the complete opposite of a throne. And notice when you read this this week, that Jesus does not say that I will suffer and be killed. Jesus says I must suffer and I must be killed because here's the deal. The mighty lion of Judah, the way that he's going to save is by becoming a helpless lamb. The one with all the power. The way he's going to atone for sin. The way that he's going to reconcile us to God. The way that he's going to rip the head off Satan once and for all. The way that he's going to put the world to rights. The way he's going to put our lives back together again. He's going to give up power. He didn't come to unleash a sword. He came to fall on a sword. Because Jesus wins by losing. Jesus triumphs through defeat. His power is unleashed through weakness. And listen, in so doing... Do you see what a mockery Jesus makes of our world system? It's the opposite. Now, if the disciples aren't traumatized yet, (laughs) that he's going to a cross and not a throne, they're certainly going to be traumatized by what Jesus says next. Because what Jesus says next is, not only must I go to a cross, but you must too. Because anyone who follows me is going to go my way. He's going to walk my path. He too will suffer. He and she or she will give up their life. Look at verses 24 and 25. Because this is Jesus' definition of discipleship. It's not just us believing all the right things, but discipleship at the core of it is, is losing our life and taking up our cross so we can follow him on his path. Again, because in God's economy, the way that you find life, the abundant life and resurrected life is through suffering. It's through suffering. There is no redemption. There is no reconciliation. There is no resurrection without a cross. Do you know that? Because so many today want Christ without a cross. We want to do discipleship without a cross. And yet it's through the cross, it's through suffering that we get the life of Christ. 
you know that? See, no one says this better than C.S. Lewis. In fact, he writes this in the last paragraph of Mere Christianity. He says, give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambition and favorite wishes every day and death of your whole body and submit with every fiber of your being and then you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing because nothing that you have not given away will really be yours and nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look out for yourself, and here's what you'll find. You'll find hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ, and you'll find him. And with everything else thrown in. That's his way. You can't fight against this. That's what it means to be a disciple. Okay, moving on. Chapter 17. Because following this event, Jesus has one more order of business before he begins his journey to the cross. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John who's the brother of James, and he led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as the light. And just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, three mishkans, One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. (laughs) The dude's so impulsive. I love it. Can't keep his mouth shut. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And listen to him is what? From where? No, but close. Deuteronomy 18. When the great prophet, the new prophet Moses comes, you will listen to him. And I'll cover this a little bit more in a second. But when the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and he touched them. Get up, he said. Do not be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw none but Jesus. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. This is God's word. You can be seated. Strange event. Again, don't just... Try to understand the miracle, but try to see the picture, the picture, because it's through the picture that Matthew is telling us who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do. 
starts off with after six days. Some think the disciples are so traumatized that they're just in silence, but now we can get the story going again. Um, But I don't think that's exactly what is going on, even though that might be what's going on. Um, Let me just show you these six details in our story. You have that clause after six days. You also have in that same verse up a high mountain. Then further down, you have the word shelter or tent or tabernacle, however you want to put it. Then in verse 5, you have the word cloud. Then you also have the word voice. Where else in the Bible do you have these exact descriptions? Does anybody know? Yes, when Moses went up the mountain. This is the last paragraph of Exodus 24. It starts with six days, then it has up the mountain. You have the glory. That's one of the words I actually forgot to mention in ours. Um, You have the cloud, and you have the voice. And what Exodus 24 is describing is that incredible moment in the biblical story when the glory of God comes down on the mountain. When that cloud envelops the mountain, the people look at it and and it appears to them as a consuming fire. And Moses enters the cloud for 40 days and God speaks to him. Now, have you ever asked yourself this question, and I'm going down a rabbit trail, but who's in that cloud? that pillar of of cloud by day and fire by night. Did you know, too, that that cloud didn't float or hover, which is what clouds do, but it walked? There's even a time when it it runs to the the front of the line because the Egyptians are coming, and then it runs to the other uh, side of the people. Who's in it? So let's just say then that Matthew 17, this is not the first time when the second person of the Trinity comes down on a mountain cloaked in a cloud. I love verse 2. Because for the first time the disciples see Jesus without his veil. It's like in this moment Jesus reveals the veil and they see Jesus for the first time in all his glory. He's radiant. His clothes are, are so white that you can't describe it as white, but it's, it's, it's light. And his face, the text says, was shining like the sun. Because now you have the second person of the Trinity coming down on the mountain again. And Jesus is not reflecting the sun. Jesus is the sun. Who's with them? Moses and Elijah. Why Moses and Elijah? What do Moses and Elijah represent? Yeah, the whole law and the prophets. So what you have is the whole story of God and the one to whom the story points. Also, do you know of a text in the scriptures where all three are present? Only one place. I find this to be beautiful. Not that you don't know, but where this is found. Malachi 4. What's Malachi 4? 
It's the last chapter of the Old Testament. It's that great and dreadful day of the Lord. It's their, their Revelation 21 and 22. And it says, surely that day is coming. It will burn like a fur- furnace. And it says, all the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. And the day is coming that will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. He says, but for you who revere my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. Who's the son of righteousness? Jesus, Messiah. Okay, going down uh, to verse 4. It says, remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. There's Moses. And then verse 5, see, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before the great and dreadful day the Lord occurs. These three must be present before the great dreadful day of the Lord. Also, what do we know about Moses and Elijah in their life that has something to do with a mountain? Both these guys sought the mountain of the Lord for 40 days. In fact, Moses was so blunt when he was on the mountain of the Lord during his 40 days. After all he had received from God, he still has the audacity to say, God, it's not enough. It's not enough. I got your name. I got your will. I got your laws. I sense your presence, but I want to see your face. Show me your face. And what does God say? I think God is feeling like I'd like to do that, Moses. But he says, if, I, if you see my face, you're going to die. It's going to kill you. So Moses never sees his face. And then Elijah, of course, did his 40-day journey through the desert to the mountain of the Lord, and he got all those uh, amazing displays of God, God's power. He got that tornado, then he got the earthquake, then he got the, the, the fire that's just blazing from heaven. And to a surprise, God was not in any of those things, but where did he find the presence of God? In that whisper, in that still, small voice, in God's sowed. So does pillow talk between lovers. But he still didn't get his face. So here are Peter, James, and John. They are seeing what even the prophets didn't see. God removes his veil and they see God's face. What's the shocker in the text? They didn't die. See, I love Peter because Peter knows the text because when God came down that first time on Sinai in the glory cloud and when he spoke from the cloud, it about killed everyone. That's why the very next chapter, Exodus 25, God instructs the tabernacle. God says, make me a tabernacle. Make me a shelter so I can live and walk among my people and not have to kill you. See, that's... That's why there's a tabernacle. That's why there's a temple. Because the tabernacle and the temple actually protected them from God. It allowed for them to get near God without being crushed by God. Because what is the word for glory? Do you remember that word? Kavod. And what does kavod mean? Weight. Heavy. The glory of God, when it comes down on us, it crushes us. It's going to kill us. And of course, they had that one room in the tent. 
called the most holy place. That was God's place. No one could go there. It was behind the veil. And see, Peter understands the text because God now has removed the veil and they see the face of God. And so he's saying, we need protection. We need a tabernacle or the glory of God. It's going to crush us. And then what happens? Now all of a sudden, this cloud envelops the disciples. And I'm confident at this point, these guys think they're dead men. And then God speaks. And what God says in that sentence is not only the greatest remez in the Bible, but I think it's the single greatest thing ever uttered about Jesus. And for sake of time, I can't explain it all to you. But do you remember what remez is? Remez is this teaching technique that's done in Jesus' day by the rabbis. Still done to this day. For instance, if I say, you must be born again. What are you thinking? John 3, hopefully, some of you. Or if I say, our Father who art in heaven, what are you thinking? The Lord's Prayer. So this is the way that these guys would teach. Rather than having to say these huge chunks, they could just say a simple clause from that chunk, knowing their audience knew that chunk word for word. And then they just string these, these they call it stringing pearls. They'd take a pearl from here, a pearl from here, a pearl from here, and they'd, they'd string them along. Jesus, or God, just strung together some amazing pearls. Do you know what they are? He says, this is my son. What pearl is that? Psalm 2, please read it this week. God says, I've set my king on my holy hill, on Zion. And today, he's become a son to me. And I'm I'm his father. And that's not just speaking of the kind of relationship that that they have. But every time son is used in the New Testament, whether it's son of God or son of man, you can translate that as king. He's king. He's my king. He's my Messiah. And the nations will be his inheritance. That's Psalm 2. Who am I delight? Where's that from? What pearl is that? That's, the, that's Isaiah 42. What's Isaiah 42? We've just tapped into a whole chunk of Scripture. Isaiah 50, or 42 through 53. It's one of the most mysterious yet hopeful passages in the Bible. Simply referred to as the servant. Because in this chunk, there's this mysterious servant of the Lord who's going to bring about a salvation and a redemption that would blow people's minds away. But how does it end? The servant's going to be lifted up. He's going to be marred. People are going to hide their faces. He's going to be crushed. And then this clause, the son whom I love, or my beloved son, where's the only other place in the Bible where this clause is used? Genesis 22. The story of Abraham and Isaac, the story of a father 
and a son walking up a mountain to perform a sacrifice. And see, when you put these pearls together, you have the Psalm 2 messianic king who is to come, connected with Isaiah's servant of Isaiah 42 through 53. And you have this king who's going to bring such a great and awesome salvation. And how is he going to do it? Through suffering. And if you want to see the picture, go to Genesis 22. Because you'll see a father taking his son, laying him on the altar, and raising a knife. Now Luke's gospel gives us an amazing detail about the transfiguration tells us what Moses, Elijah, and Jesus are talking about. They're discussing something together. Do you know what it is? Jesus' departure. In Hebrew, what is the word for departure? Exodus. Exodus means way out. Of course they're talking about Exodus. Exodus is the single greatest act of redemption in the Bible prior to Christ. It's when God rescued his people from slavery, from this dominion of darkness, and he took them to himself. And that's Jesus. He's the greater Moses. He came to bring the world, the world exodus, freedom, freedom from sin, freedom from guilt, freedom from addiction, freedom from ourselves, freedom. In Greek, departure means what? Death. So put these two together, the great exodus that Jesus came to bring, it's going to be through death. So as awesome as the Mount of Transfiguration is, this isn't the mountain. The mountain by which God, through Jesus, his Messiah, is going to lead his people. Exodus, out of slavery, out of the dominion of darkness. It's going to be on a different mountain. I think that's why the Mount of Transfiguration is never specified, or really any mountain for that matter in the Gospels. I mean, whether it's the Sermon on the Mount, people say the Sermon on the Mount happened there, but they don't know. Uh, we don't really know where the, the, the Mount of Transfiguration is, even though I think it's Mount Hermon, or those mountains that Jesus went up to pray. We don't really know what mountain uh, that was, because in the Bible, there's only one mountain that matters. Only one. Do you remember what Abraham said to God after Isaac? After God spared Isaac, he says, On the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. What mountain was Abraham on when he said that? Moriah. Zion. Psalm 2 says it too. I've I've installed my king on my holy hill, which is where, he says, in Zion. See, and this is the choice or, or, or the temptation that's presented to Jesus. He's living between two mountains. While it's good to be on the Mount of Transfiguration, this is not the mountain where God is going to save and redeem the world. The Mount of Transfiguration, what it represents is everything that Jesus left. Jesus gave that mountain up. Jesus gave up his glory. But he came to this world to be placed on another hill. 
And if you want to know why Jesus just gets off on Peter in the previous chapter where he says, you get behind me now. You sound like Satan. You're a scandal on to me right now. It's because of this temptation. And if you want to know why the disciples didn't die that day, because they should have. And why you and I don't die when we go into the presence of a holy God. Well, look at the answer in verse 8. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw none but Jesus. It's only because of Jesus. Because when we get to the end of Matthew's gospel, in Matthew 27, verse 51, at the moment that he dies and breathes his last breath, when he completes his mission, it says at that moment the veil of the temple was torn in two, signifying this awesome truth that we can now go in. We can now behold the face of God and not die. See, Jesus brought the great and dreadful day of the Lord. He brought this day that burned like a furnace when God's burning righteous wrath was poured out on the world for all sin. But instead of it being poured out on the world, it was laid upon a cross on Mount Moriah. And see, the disciples' lives are spared and our lives are spared because God did not spare the life of his own son. He was crushed. He was the one who bore the wrath, the fire, the furnace. He took it all upon himself. And because of this, I want you to know this, that glory that should crush us can now come right into our life and it can live in us. We're temples. We're holy of holies, says the Bible. And I love how Paul puts this. He says, he says, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, which is in the face of Christ. We, are tr- we have this treasure in jars of clay. It's in us. And I love verse 7 because here are these disciples. They are in utter terror. They are bowed face down before the king of the universe. And Jesus comes up to them. He puts his hand on them. He touches them. He takes them by the hand. He picks them up. And he says, do not be afraid. Let me tell you something. This is the heart of the gospel. See, if all we had was the Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration, we'd all be left in utter terror. But what we have is Christ on another mountain. We have Christ on a cross. And it's from this vulnerable, helpless place that the King of the universe says, Come. Do you see him? 
from that place, putting his hand on you and saying, do not be afraid. Perfect love, perfect love. Guess how fear. And here's the deal. To really appreciate this, we need to know Christ without his veil. Do you know that Christ? John describes him in Revelation 1. He says, I saw him. His face was like the sun. And he says, I fell down like a dead man. Revelation 6 verse 15 says that then the kings of the earth and the princes and the generals and the rich and the mighty and every slave and every free man, they hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called on the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. We need to know him too on the Mount of Transfiguration, because when we see him again, that's what we're going to see. And when you see that king, there's only one response. Face down. Face down. He is the king. And that's what we do with kings. We bow, we submit, we give over everything. Some of you need to come up front today and bow. Let's pray. We just thank you for these two mountains, Lord mountain of your glory. You're not just a mere man. You're not a mere prophet. You're not a mere teacher. But you are the son. You're the king. You're the creator of the world. You hold all things in your hands. And someday in the new heavens and the earth, there will be no need for a son because your face will be the sun. But where would we be, Lord, if that's all we had, just that mountain? We thank you that the whole Bible points us to another mountain, to Mount Moriah, where you, Father, took your son and you led him up a hill and you laid him on an altar so that we, right now, could place our life in your death in our death and your life and your glory can live in us and through us please God may we respond appropriately to who you are with all that we are at your feet